This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Our Heavenly Father, as we stand in prayer, we seek to understand your word, Lord, but we know that that doesn't mean picking it apart and dissecting it. It means literally standing under it, submitting to your word. And I pray that you would speak to us, that you would give us open ears and soft hearts, that we would hear from you this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, This is our third Sunday in uh, the book of James. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've loved sitting under this book for the past uh, couple weeks. James happens to be one of my favorite books in the Bible, partly because um, it's so familiar to me. There's probably not another book that I've studied more than the book of James. Um, But one of the reasons why I love it is because no matter how much I read it, no matter how familiar I am with it, this book always has something new to challenge me. Hiding just behind Hebrews, James is a little letter, but it punches above its weight. It's a book without a lot of fluff. The Apostle James is not given to small talk. And with my personality as an Enneagram 8, this is my kind of book. It's direct, it's disruptive, and it's a bit uh, confrontational, sometimes more than a bit. Passages like ours this morning can read like a finger in the chest. We can't read this book without knowing that it requires something of us. And of course, all scripture is like this. Like Rilke's Apollo, the word of God casts a spotlight in each of our lives, and it exposes us. It sees us. And through Holy Scripture, God places a demand on each and every one of us. You must change your life. All Scripture does that, but for me, for James, this is especially true. And it shouldn't surprise us. This is why James wrote the letter. He wrote it so that the church can know what faith actually looks like in everyday life. This is why I think James seems less interested in the question, what are we to believe? And of course, James cares about what we believe, but he's much more interested in the question, what are we to do? What are we to do because of what we believe? Now, some 40 years ago, philosopher Alistair McIntyre said this about the question, what are we to do? He wrote, we can only answer this question, what are we to do, if we answer the prior question of what story or stories do we find ourselves apart? And this is a famous line, you've probably heard it before, It's famous because it's so insightful, it's so true. The only way we can know how we are to live is if we know what story is shaping our lives. The story we inhabit tells us who we are, why we're here, and where we're going. The story that shapes our lives helps us to know just what to do. And just as with James' first century audience, people in every time and place are always being pulled between the gravitational center of two competing stories. We're always being pulled between two conceptions of reality, two paths of life, 
two ways of being human beings. And our passage this morning confronts each one of us with a choice. Will you follow the way of the world or the way of wisdom? Will you submit to the devil or to God? Will you align your life with the way of Adam or the way of Jesus? In our passage, it's pretty simple in structure. It has two sections. Verses uh, chapter 313 to 4-6 is the first section. And this is where James outlines the problem. In verses 7 through 10, James prescribes the solution. And if we're listening carefully to these two sections in this passage, we'll hear two competing stories. These two stories that were always being pulled between. As we'll see, the problem stems from letting the story of Adam and Eve shape how we live. The solution is to repent, to turn from their story and to allow the story of Jesus Christ to shape us. So first we're going to look at the problem as the Apostle James sees it. And the problem is this. He says we're towing the line between friendship with God and friendship with the world. And throughout this passage, I don't know if you heard it, but if you were listening closely, you would hear loud echoes of Genesis 3. We see the same characters in our passage. We find God, the devil, and human beings. And we see the same plot line. There's a battle of inner cravings, a rejection of God's word and wisdom, surrendering to devilish wisdom, taking that which does not belong to us, all of which leads to death and division. You see, James is showing how the story of Genesis 3 casts a very long and dark shadow. The plot line of Genesis 3 has played itself out down through the centuries, and it continues to play itself out in our lives. The poison in the blood of our parents streams through our veins. This is how James describes it, the problem. It all begins with cravings at war within us. And the word craving here is the Greek word hedone, which is where we get our word for hedonist or hedonism. It means a self-serving desire. James tells us that the craving at the root of all that's wrong in the world is envy. He names it. We see it in verse 2 of chapter 4. You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. You covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflict. James says envy leads to murder and disputes, killing and chaos. It's the root of all of killing and chaos. And it may seem a bit dramatic, but I think if we trace every single conflict, all division, and every war back to its dark source, we'll find envy there at its roots. And I think this makes sense when you realize that the logic of the world, the logic of the world assumes that we live in a zero-sum game. The degree to which you have is the degree to which I do not have. If you're winning, that means I'm losing, and therefore I must win. I must take and get by any means necessary. This is the way of wisdom from below. It's earthly, unspiritual, and devilish. And at its root is the logic of competition. 
Commentator Luke Timothy Johnson, I think, is right as he describes the movement of this logic. He says, the logic of competition always moves in the direction of elimination. Killing the competition is the ultimate expression of envy. This is how the story of Adam goes, and it's one of the most common and compelling stories that we tell ourselves. This is what we tell ourselves. As people, deep down, we think this. As people, we deserve what we desire, and we should always get what we want. The problem that we face in the world is that there's always someone or something, it could be God, it could be certain individuals, it could be society, there's always someone outside of ourselves that is withholding the things that we desire and the things that we deserve. It could be certain privileges or positions or power. And the solution, we tell ourselves, is to take and to get. And we're pretty good at this. We're often quite subtle about it. But we grasp after and we snatch and we're willing to eliminate anything or anyone that gets in the way or to destroy anything that reminds us of what we don't have. And it's not hard to see how this story plays itself out in each one of our lives. I've seen it with friends. I've seen it with friends who've had a really hard time getting pregnant. They've had fertility issues. And oftentimes, as it happens, they're surrounded by couples who get pregnant really easy, sometimes by accident. And rather than rejoice with those who rejoice, they let envy set in. And the envy sometimes turns to resentment, and resentment turns to anger, sometimes a quiet kind of hatred. Sometimes this stays in the dark places of their hearts. Other times it festers out, and they say an unkind word or mistreat other people or avoid them altogether. And so we see envy dividing a community, a church. We see this playing out in our workplaces. A colleague gets that big project or the promotion that you really wanted. The one that deep down you know you were more qualified for. You had more experience. The one that you really deserved. And instead of celebrating their success, you subtly undermine them. You complain about them in quiet ways to your colleagues. You critique their performance whenever you have the opportunity. And so we see envy polluting our workplaces. And of course we see this in our politics, perhaps it's most obvious here. Each political tribe thinks that it knows best and it craves total control. Envy for the other party's power drives politicians and pundits and their followers to not merely defeat their political opponents, but to denigrate them and to dehumanize them. Sometimes it's just a Twitter mob with words. Other times it's an actual mob with sticks and stones. And so we see envy corroding and corrupting our society. This is the way of our envy-stained world. And I think each one of us is tempted to live according to the logic of this story, to align ourselves with this plot line. And when we do this, James says, we become friends with the world. And by becoming friends with the world, that means we've become enemies with God. Now, to really feel the punch of James, of his words here, we need to understand how the first century world, how the first century culture thought about friendship was a little different from how we do. 
want you to listen to one of the leading experts describe friendship in the first century. He writes this, to be friends meant above all to share, to share, to have the same mind, to have the same outlook, the same view of reality. So being friends with the world is not just being uncontroversial to our neighbors or compromising in some small ways. Being friends with the world means living in the same story, letting the wisdom of the world shape what we do. And I think we're always tempted to live like this. We're always pulled into this story. And oftentimes we do. We do so much, in fact, that living like this can feel awfully normal, but it's not. Living like this is actually inhuman. God created us to live very differently. And I think we see this in 4, 5, chapter 4, verse 5. Now, the Greek in this verse is a bit tricky. Nearly every version of the Bible translates it a little bit differently, which shows you that the translators have a hard time understanding just exactly what this saying. The translation that makes the most sense to me comes again from Luke Timothy Johnson, the man I quoted before in his commentary on the book of James. This is how he translates verse 5 as two rhetorical questions. He translates it like this. Do you suppose the scripture speaks in vain? Does the spirit which God made to dwell in us crave enviously? I'll read it again. Do you suppose the scripture speaks in vain? Does the spirit which God made to dwell in us crave enviously? Put differently, this is what James is asking. Does the Bible really tell us that God created human beings to live like this? Or as Johnson puts it, is envy really the proper sort of longing for the spirit God placed in humanity? Well, the answer to these questions is no, it is not. God created us to live according to another story. That's why the solution that James offers us is to repent. We are to turn from one story, the story of Adam, and to turn to another, the story of Jesus. In verses 7 to 10 of chapter 4, James tells us exactly how we are to do this. He tells us just what to do with this series of commands. He says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, lament your sins, humble yourselves. And if we're listening carefully to this solution, this call to repent, we hear the plot line of another story, submission, humility, exaltation. These are the contours of the story of Jesus Christ, a story beautifully distilled in what is called the Christ hymn of Philippians 2. This is the story that James is telling us to live by. And I'm going to read the Christ hymn for us, and I want you to listen to the parallels of this hymn and this call to repentance. Rather than having the mind of the world, the Apostle Paul tells us, we are to have the mind of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
You see, Jesus is the very embodiment of wisdom from above. He is wisdom from above made flesh. And because Jesus was faithful where Adam was not, he creates new possibilities for us. By faith, he makes it possible for us to live in his story, this new story, and so become the type of people that God created us to be. James calls us to repent, to turn from living the story of Adam to living the story of Jesus Christ. And this is what repentance looks like. Unlike Adam who rejected God's authority by following Christ, we submit ourselves to God's word and align ourselves with God's wisdom. Unlike Adam who obeyed the serpent, in the power of Christ we are to resist the devil's lies. Unlike Adam who hid from the face of God in the garden, through Christ we draw near to God in the intimacy of prayer and in worship. Unlike Adam who exalted himself above God like Christ, we humble ourselves because we know that like Christ, if we do this, we too will be exalted. James is telling us what to do because of what we believe. And in a few minutes, we're going to have the opportunity to respond. James is an epistle that is incredibly practical. James is going to give us an opportunity to respond in a very practical way. We have an opportunity to put all of this into practice. James calls us to submit to God, to humble ourselves, and to draw near to God. And we do this when we come to God in confession, when we confess our sins together. If the Lord this morning is convicting you of something, this is the time to name it, to confess it, because God is waiting for us. He's waiting to forgive us. Maybe it's a specific action or an activity or a behavior. Confess it. This is how we cleanse our hands. Maybe it's a specific thought or a habit of feeling or thinking. Confess it. This is how we cleanse and purify our hearts. James calls us to submit to God, to humble ourselves, and to draw near. And we do this when we come to the Lord's table. The Lord is a gracious host, and he invites us to his table. He invites us to come hungry and to come humbly. God invites us forward with open hands. This isn't just a way of receiving the bread and the wine. It's profoundly symbolic. We are invited to come with hands cleansed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are invited to draw near with open hands, ready to receive grace, to receive his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, his life given for us and to us as we celebrate communion together. Let's pray. Father, as we draw near to you, as we submit ourselves to you, we pray that you would give us grace, that you would help us to align our lives, not with the story of Adam, but with your story, that you would help us to be wise and to show it with our lives. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.